Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. We have a lot of stuff to talk about today, some interesting data and numbers. As always, you may have noticed the Astros are historically good again. I feel like we say this every year. We have to dig into the poor season of Daniel Polka, one of our favorites. It has not gone very well. Noah Syndergaard doesn't seem to want to throw to Wilson Ramos, should he or shouldn't he? We have a lot of fun numbers on that. James Paxton may be elite again. Chris Bryant probably isn't healthy. And the Cardinals defense is probably better, dot, 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 right? <laughs> so we'll finish Ooh, off. talk about a teaser, Mike. Have you noticed what the Astros have done the last two nights? Good Lord. <laughs> uh, the last two games, 21-1 over Seattle. Okay, Seattle's not any good. 15-0 over Oakland. Oakland's very good, and Mike Fires is pitching that game. Uh, Brian McTaggart, who is our Astros.com beat reporter, tweeted this last night, which I, I thought was hilarious. Shortly after the Astros game ended, I got an email from a fan who was worried about them. They've outscored opponents 36 to 1 over the last two games. Uh, he did not elaborate on what the worry was about. I have to guess it was like peaking too early because I can't even imagine what else it would be. Um, in case you're curious, I asked our uh, crack research team to look into this to see if they could set a record for the most games scored, most, uh, most runs scored over a three game span. Um, oh, that's a good one. I hadn't thought about that. Um, amazingly, and I'd forgotten about this, apparently last year. Just last year, the Mets scored 46 runs across three games in August. Um, Wait, really? Yes. Uh, um, I don't remember that at I think, all. I think the Phillies might have been involved because the Mets... Oh, the 24-2 game. I remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the last time a team scored uh, 50 runs over three games, they would need to score at least, I guess... Well, they're up to 36, so... They 14. scored 14 tonight to, to, to get that. Last time a team scored at least 50 runs was the Red Sox from June 7th to June 9th of 1950. So it's been a long time since a team has scored 50 runs over three games. Um, I do... I kind of already joked about this, but I feel like over the last couple of years, we've talked about the Astros being like historically this or historically that. And I don't want to say it's boring, but it's almost like... I guess Mike Trout is so consistently good that people think he's not exciting, right? Because he's always so great. And wouldn't you know it, the Astros right now have the second best offense in the history of baseball. If you look at weighted runs created, plus uh, they are at 125, 25% better than the league average. That is the second best in history dating back to 1901. The only team ahead of them, literally the 1927 Yankees at 126. Now it was pointed out to me that's slightly unfair because that preceded the designated hitter era. If you just look at non-pitchers hitting, uh, the 1927 Yankees are still number one, and this year's Astros are tied for a mere seventh. But if you go back to the other list, where the 2019 Astros are number two, uh, number five on that list, the 2017 Astros. <laughs> it has been a pretty good run. This entire list is Astros of, of two of the last three years and three different Yankees teams with Babe Ruth on them. That should tell you a little bit of something uh, about what they're doing. Andrew Simon, who is one of our researchers, uh, wrote about this the other day. And to Andrew's credit, I didn't realize this. He wrote about how good this Astros lineup uh, was, and he wrote about it before either of these two games, <laughs> which is, uh, that's some foresight. I appreciate that. Um, and one of the things he pulled with, I thought, this interesting number on depth, they have seven different hitters with at least 250 plate appearances who have an OPS of at least, OPS plus of at least 130, so 30% better than league average. Seven different hitters. That is the most in Major League history. Those seven guys are Altuve, Brantley, Alvarez, Bregman, Gurriel, Springer, and Correa. Uh, second on that list was the 1993 Tigers, which I 
can't say I have a great deal of recollection about. That was like the uh, Alan the, Trammell was probably still the on the true team. like three true outcomes team when you had like Cecil Fielder and Mickey yeah, Pendleton okay, and okay. Rob Deere. Yeah, okay, Lou Whitaker <laughs> probably still sticking around there. <laughs> Mark Carrion might have been on that team. Wow, you just pulled a bunch of those guys out. Um, some of those guys probably also on the 1987 Tigers who they were tied with, and it is kind of fascinating to see how they're doing this because like yeah, I just mentioned Carlos Correa, but he's been hurt for a while. Josh Reddick hasn't actually been any good this year. Uh, and then you have Jordan Alvarez, who, wow, hitting 316, 409, 673 in 308 plate appearances. If you were to look at every rookie season in the history of baseball with a minimum of 300 plate appearances, his 181 rated runs created plus, second best to, wait for it, shoeless Joe Jackson in 1911, um, third place on that list, Aaron Judge. A couple of years ago, if you were to lower the plate appearances so that he would uh, qualify, he would have the fifth best expected weighted on base in baseball. He would have the second best weighted on base in baseball tied with actually Mike Trout. He has a 97th percentile hard hit rate, a 96th percentile exit velocity. He gets up and he crushes baseballs. Um, He hit two home runs last night. Did you see the one that he hit to right field? Yes, it was in the third deck down the right field line. Third tank. Uh, the estimated distance on that one annoyed so many Astros fans, but that home run was like genetically engineered to look <laughs> like it went a lot further than it did right down the line at a very short right field ballpark, and it hit the upper tank. People wanted that to be 675 feet. It was never going to be that long. I mean, it was it was like 113 miles an hour off the bat, which, though. yeah, it was, it was 36 degree launch yeah. angle. So like a ball hit at that trajectory just is not going to go as far. But in terms of like the aesthetics of it, it was like, one of the prettiest home runs you'll ever see. Apparently, the first, he's the first player um, to hit it up there since Jeremy Burnett's yes. in 2001. And you know what the Astros had estimated the Jeremy Burnett's home run at? 424 feet. <laughs> it's like, it's that is how those down the line always work. Um, if you go back to the Astros, they have the lowest strikeout rate uh, as hitters and the highest strikeout rate as pitchers, the second team ever to do that. The uh, 2013 Detroit Tigers did that. What I found was kind of interesting is they don't necessarily mash the ball. Like they have the lowest strike at rate. That's great. They put the, the bat on the ball, but the second lowest rate are the angels who outside of trout, like, you know, aren't necessarily that great of an offense. The Astros are only 20th in hard hit rate and 22nd in barrel rate, which was somewhat surprising to me. I thought they'd rate higher than that. But what was kind of fascinating is that they're overperforming a little bit, especially at home. You may remember last year we talked about how Minute Maid Park, despite the very short corners, kind of played as a pitcher's park for a lot of reasons. This year, it's a little bit different. Uh, This year, the Astros have the second highest weighted on base at home behind Colorado, but they have 40 points of weighted on base over their expected. They're overperforming by 40 points, and that is a tick higher than the Rockies at home, which is unusual to say the least. I know this isn't a very good Rockies team, but they still get the boost of Coors Field. Uh, On the road, the Astros have the third highest weighted on base, and they are overperforming by only six points. So I don't know. They're not hitting it that hard. They're making a lot of contact. They're overperforming. Are they specifically engineering swings meant to dink balls into the Crawford boxes? I would think so, at least for a couple. I think, you know, Bregman comes to mind yes. certainly as a guy who's like home runs are really he, – he like, you know, sort of tunes his power swing to to go over like the left field, the, the uh, over the Crawford box. I'm looking at a, a spray chart of his home runs right now and I'll, sh- I'll show it to you, Mike. You guys cannot see it, but it's basically it's a big a red, it is a big red, <laughs> a big red blob basically right down the left field line. So him in particular, um, Altuve as well, who also like our people, he had a slow start. You look at his line now, he's like, like great. having a Jose Altuve season. It's fantastic. Yeah. Over the last, like, two um, so I think there, there definitely is a little bit, uh, 
of that, especially, you know, in terms of like training their hitters to kind of when they can see pitches, they can, you know, they can elevate to really try and pull them down the line because there is no cheaper home run than that. Maybe it is when you don't need to, when making contact is more likely to lead to power than ever, maybe just making contact and not swinging out of your shoes to generate power uh, is a good approach, which is interesting. And just if you go back to uh, the overperformance, I had split it up into home and road. If you look at it overall, the Rockies are number one and the Astros are number two. And it's a small gap. The Rockies are overperforming by 25 points and the Astros by 22 points of actual versus expected, which is interesting. That That's going to be a lot of park factors, which would be fine, except for the fact that before last year, Minute Maid was a pitcher's park. <laughs> we went through all this already. Like, baseball is always uh, beautiful and confounding. Before we move on from the Astros, I would like to remind they still do not have any intentional walks. <laughs> As a pitching team, they will be the first team in history to do that. And if they screw this up with like two and a half weeks left in the season, they won't, right? But also, AJ Hinch maybe like final day of the season, will just throw someone out there and like wave the four. I could see that. One point I do want to make about the Astros is, I think we're you know you made this point. You said this before about how like their dominance has gotten kind of boring, and it, it to a weird extent it has. But like they're in the midst of one of the most dominant stretches of baseball um we looked this up right now over a three-year span they have the the best run differential over a three-year span of any team in the divisional era so basically right now over, since 2017 through through yesterday um they are plus 714 714 runs <laughs> better than the opposition the best after that the best three-year span for a team in terms of run differential was the 1969 to 1971 orioles followed by the 1997 to 1999 yankees which you know includes the legendary 98, 98 yankees. yankees so what we're seeing here is you know people can say oh dynasty it only matters if you win the ring yada 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 they, they at least have one ring. they do have one like there's an argument we're seeing the most dominant three-year stretch in the, in the divisional era. I, I know what the Red Sox did last year, but I will go to my grave saying the Astros were the best team in baseball last year. <laughs> I know that's like a losing argument, um, but I'm going to make it. So it's, it is interesting to, to, it'll be interesting to see like sort of the narrative that's written. I remember like um, in uh, Rob Nyer uh, about 20 years ago wrote a book on like great baseball dynasties and he included teams like those Orioles and like the 86 Mets, teams that maybe only won one or two titles. And he, he sort of was looking at these other factors of like there's much more, especially once you get to the divisional and wild card era where, you know, the playoffs become more and more of a crapshoot where the best team, the more playoff rounds you add in baseball, the less often the best team wins. And we're going to, we're seeing that more, more often in, in the modern era or the, or the current, the current era. And, you know, we could see that again with the Astros. This year. Not to, I mean, obviously the Dodgers and maybe, you know, to a lesser extent, the Yankees and the Braves even are, you know, they're not so far below them in terms of talent, but at least the, the extended dominance we've seen over the Astros the last three years I'm not sure people are fully appreciating. That's why it was really funny when they called up Jordan Alvarez in June. It's like, oh, you know what they need? Another elite, you know, source of talent. Uh, he's going to be the unanimous rookie of the year, I think. He might get some down ballot MVP support. Oh yeah, he's going to be. He's like, like in a, with fewer than 400 plate appearances. Too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he's earned uh, every single bit of it, from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. I want to really just preface this entire segment by saying 
we mean no ill will towards Daniel Palka, who is by all indications um, a great teammate with an amazing sense of humor. If you don't know the Daniel Palka story about how he and a friend fabricated his inclusion in the 2010 McDonald's All-American and, uh, Basketball Classic, I implore you to look it up because it's objectively hilarious. Um, Daniel Palka, I guess we probably talked and about And for the record, I'll just mention, well, it's, it's, his name is still up there on the Wikipedia page. Yeah, I noticed that too yesterday. How is it still a thing? <laughs> like Wikipedia pages, I've edited them from time to time, yeah. sometimes as a gag with a friend and like... It'll get fixed it's like still instantaneously. There. I think now the people of Wikipedia have probably put like a lock on this page being like, we want to preserve this joke. But you go to the, the box score and you will see NBA stars such as um, – actually, there's not – Kyrie Irving, um, Tobias Harris, uh, Harrison Barnes, Reggie Bullock, and Daniel and Falca. And Daniel Falca, <laughs> uh, which is fantastic. We probably talked about Daniel Palka last year because Definitely. he was something – of a oh I remember now we talked about him in in ways both good and bad so the good way we talked about him last year is that he had really some elite exit velocity and hard hit skills last year he had 27 home runs as a rookie the third most by any rookie White Sox hitter ever and he was one of only six hitters in baseball to get up to 118 miles an hour of exit velocity like that is a truly elite level um, if you are up there like the other guys are Judge and Stanton and Trout and Gary Sanchez right like that is very very difficult to do you just don't do that so great. I think we also talked about him from a defensive point of view, where for most of the year, and maybe the entire year, he had a perfect fielding percentage because he, he never got slapped with an error, despite like botching a bunch of 99% plays he didn't get close enough to get to, so that was kind of a fun discussion of how you actually measure fielding. Anyway, we enjoyed Daniel Palka. This year, he has stepped to the plate 61 times. He has one hit. <laughs> that is almost impossible to do. That is a line of point. <laughs> I can't even say it, uh, 0.019 slash 131 slash 0.019. That is the weakest line by any non-pitcher in a 60-plate appearance season ever. No one has ever stepped to the plate in the history of baseball at least 60 times and come away with just one hit. Now, based on my description of the kind of hitter Daniel Palka is, you would ex- assume that that one hit was at least blasted, right? You'd say, okay, well, he got one good swing in a baseball. He pounded one into the bleachers. Uh, no. His one hit this year was a 63-mile-an-hour dinker that would have gone right to the shortstop had the shortstop not been shifted out of position. That is it. That is, that's all he's had. And anyway, like, you know, I wrote about this for the site. And, and again, no malice intended. It's just, it's really hard to do this. This has literally never happened before. So I needed to, to see what and how. Um, Polka has been up to the plate 61 times. He has struck out 23 times. That's a 38% strikeout rate. That's obviously too high. Six walks, one hit. One hit by pitch, 30 field outs. Of those 30 field outs, 24 of them have gone to infielders. Some of the grounders, some of them pop-ups. You can see why that's bad. And I did this uh, for fun. You wouldn't no- normally combine like line drives and ground balls and fly balls like this. But of every player with 25 batted balls this year, of which there are more than 500, his 107-foot average distance is third lowest. Ahead of Eric Gonzalez, Pittsburgh shortstop, and literally Clayton Kershaw. <laughs> there are 13 pitchers above him. Uh, I tweeted out yesterday that list with the top of the list where Mike Trout, Joey Gallo, and Will Smith were on the top of the list for uh, highest average distance with at least 25 batted balls. Nobody got who number one was on the list. Even when I tweeted out a gif of the men, people still didn't know who it was. Did you see the answer? I forget. I already forget his name. It's a player I'll admit I'd not even heard of. Kyle Garlick. Oh, yes. <laughs> of the Dodgers. Now we're getting... We're getting... Now we're off bread, but I, I had to at least point it out. Um, back to Paul. It's not bad luck, right? It's He has an expected batting average of .085. Um, what I wanted to point out here was that opening day for him was kind of a high point. So he makes the opening day roster. 
Uh, draws a walk in the second inning. Cool. His first White Sox uh, base runner of the season. Struck out in the fifth. Fine. Seventh inning, he steps up. Drills a ball. 110 miles an hour off the bat to right field. Only 1.4% of batted balls are 110 miles an hour or higher. Major League average on those balls is 784. It's really good. It went right to Whit Merrifield. Unfortunately, it was now. But you, you probably walk away saying, well, I wish I'd gotten a hit, but at least I drilled that baseball. That's that's a good feeling to have. That was his highest expected weighted on baseball of the entire season. Uh, he's kind of He's gone back down to AAA twice. He's given some great quotes. On April 7th, he said, it's not possible to go 0 for 500, which is subjectively true. There is no one. I mean, I'd probably go for 500. No, but... no, no, it's not possible. No one would allow you to. That's the thing. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um, April. So he gets the hit on April 17th. He finally breaks what was at the time an 0 for 32 streak uh, just this year, plus 0 for 34 going back to last year. And his reward for finally breaking the streak immediately optioned to AAA. And his quote was, my numbers kind of speak for themselves. You know, competitively speaking, I myself would have done it earlier. As I said, we like Daniel Palka. He seems like a good dude. Uh, he went back and forth with the minors a couple times. He is now back in the majors. He's been up since September 3rd. Nine plate appearances, five strikeouts, no hits. I want to know why the White Sox aren't just playing him in right field every single They're playing Ryan Goins out there. Come on. I mean, what's what's also kind of interesting is that, he, I mean, granted, everyone's hit a AAA this year. But in AAA, he's actually hit pretty well. His line is 263, 374, 527 with 27 homers at right. AAA. Like, it's not like he's forgotten. It's weird because, you know, you, you talk about how he's really hitting the ball on the ground and not elevating like he has. But, you know, in, in, in AAA, that hasn't really been a factor. He's He's been, you know, fine. You know, it's probably like, you know, a relative like league average line for a player uh, with like major league experience like him, but still it's not like he's been completely lost it. Like he has like the, the hitting yips or something. Well, somebody, when I wrote the article tweeted at me, you know, why, like what's changed? Is he, is his mechanics different? Has he seen different types of pitches, et cetera? I don't really have a good answer. I mean, if you're going to go one hit in 61 blade appearances, I think it's just a season you sort of write off and you hope to come back next year a little bit better. I hope he gets another shot. I guess that's what I want. I don't, mm. I don't want him to end like this with just that one dinker. I want to see one Polka blast this year. And I'd like to see him getting some uh, actual DH playing time for somebody next year because he's a lot of fun when he's crushing the ball. And this is just sort of a a weird thing to have hung around your head. That is your Daniel Polka White Sox uh, moment of our podcast. The Mets have had uh, an interesting season. Noah Syndergaard uh, does not want to throw to Wilson Ramos anymore. Before we get into any of the numbers... That's got to be a good feeling if you're Wilson Ramos, <laughs> right? Like, that's that's not the first time we've heard that, too. Um, Anthony DeComo, our Mets.com beat reporter, has some quotes. Mickey Calloway said, he doesn't worry about what guys' preferences are in terms of pitchers and catchers. Brody Van Wagenen said, from our standpoint, we don't have personal catchers, which is sort of weird because Jacob deGrom, who was his client, basically did that <laughs> last season uh, to great effect. Um, I dug up some numbers on... Wilson Ramos and uh, Tomas Nito and a little bit of Rene Rivera, but this is mostly about uh, Ramos and Nito because that's what the argument here is. And some of this supports Syndergaard. Some of it doesn't. I think the actual story is if it makes him feel comfortable, that's not going to necessarily show up in any numbers and you might want to do that. Although Ramos has been uh, scorching the ball lately and that led to a really interesting shift last night. We'll get to that in a second. You should usually never use catcher ERA for many reasons, but in case you wanted to, Syndergaard to Ramos, 509. Syndergaard to Rivera and Nito, 222. That's a big enough gap that, you know, you can at least put some credence into it. Nito with Syndergaard has allowed a uh, better expected weighted on base, 255 to 284, and a better actual weighted on base, 264 to 308. I should note, though, that, like, 
even with Ramos, it's well above well, average. That's exactly what I was going <laughs> to say. That's not bad. Like, I, I didn't look deeper into how you get from like a pretty decent weighted on base to a 509 ERA. Uh, it could possibly be those were the games that the bullpen like totally ate it, which it's the Mets. That's happened a few times. The defense could have been bad. That's how you get the idea. But here's what's fascinating to me. Syndergaard has a higher strikeout rate to Ramos, 24% to 23.9%, so I called a tie. Uh, a lower walk rate to Ramos, 5.2%, with Anito at 7.2%. Now, he does have a much higher hard hit rate with Ramos, 35%, with Nito 27%. So that is probably something. But what I think kind of stands out here the most is what happens um, when he is either ahead in the count or behind the count. So he actually gets ahead in the count with Ramos more often than he does with Nito. 34.2% of pitches are ahead in the count with Ramos, 308 with Nito. When he's behind in the count, he's actually a little better with Ramos. Uh, Nito, he gets lit up, 481 weighted on base, Ramos 369. So, so far, these numbers don't really paint a picture of one versus the other. However, What's important to remember here is that Ramos is not a very good framer. We have him at negative four framing runs, which is below average. High above the zone, he's actually really, really good. Third best behind Sandy Leone and Yadi Molina uh, at a 59% call strike rate. Really good. Low, below the zone, in the dirt, he is the worst in baseball. He has a 32.5% strike rate. That is last. Second to last is Chris Iannetta, who no longer has a job. So, when you think about that and you think about what a pitcher might think if he doesn't trust his guy to catch the ball low in the dirt, here's what you end up with. Ahead in the count, Wilson Ramos allows a 234 weighted on base. Again, still pretty good. Nito, 153. And I think this is maybe where Syndergaard is talking about. And you can see it in the pitch usage. When the pitcher is ahead in the count, he throws a slider to Nito 27% of the time. He throws it to Ramos 13% of the time. He throws way more fastballs, and there's about a 100-point difference in weighted on base between his fastball and his slider. So I feel like there's probably something there. I also feel like none of this matters because if he doesn't want to throw to the guy, don't make him throw to the guy, but that's just me. I feel like you could make that work. You did it for DeGrom last year. Um, But there is some data-based evidence that there is a different result here at, in important situations yeah, it's a, it's a i think it's a tough it's a tough spot from a management perspective because like you don't really necessarily want um to set a couple of things you don't really want to set a precedent because like you know the mets have a number of high profile pitchers and if suddenly like you give one guy a personal catcher then maybe everyone wants it and you know it's one thing when it's Degrom because he's like kind of you can make the argument that a like he's by far your best pitcher and b like you can sacrifice offense when he pitches because you're really not going to, you know, theoretically not going to give up a lot of runs. Um, I think if I were managing the team, I would try and accommodate Syndergaard like, you know, 60 to 70% of the time. Sure. Um, but I don't think, you also don't want to get in a situation where, you know, guys get injured. So like, suddenly like your personal catcher gets injured, you know, you have to get used to throwing to other people or you, you know, if you somehow make it to the, I remember the Braves in the nineties, they used to give Maddox, Greg Maddox, a personal catcher. Hey, it's Greg Maddox. And Eddie they, Perez, right? Yeah, and then oh, they, yeah. but they get to the playoffs, and it was like, well, Javi Lopez is a much better hitter, and it was always a controversy, like, who's going to catch? Does he want to throw to um, Lopez? And, you know, I'm not saying that's the reason that the Braves always seem to underachieve in the playoffs, but it was definitely a thing. It was definitely something that came up every October, and the Braves were always there. So it's kind of a no-win situation from a management perspective. Um, so I can see why they wanted to kind of try and Hold the line publicly. It will be very interesting to see who ends up catching uh, Syndergaard in his next start. It was a little weird. It seemed like they easily could have set it up because he pitched on Sunday on a day game after a night game. It seemed like they easily could have set it up to like, hey, we'll have Ramos play on Saturday night and then have whoever you know one of the backups catch uh, Syndergaard on 
on Sunday. Yeah, and don't forget Ramos is killing the ball right now. Well, that's he got that, off to a really slow start, and he's been awesome. Lately. And that's I think that I mean that's that's the biggest thing is basically one they want his bat in the yeah. he's literally been their cleanup hitter since, since August first. He has the fifth best weighted runs created plus in baseball behind Bregman, Soto, Marte, and Rendon. That is, I get it. It's only like a month or so, but on the season 301, 363, 430. And did you see what happened last night against the Diamondbacks? They played, the Diamondbacks are known for weird shifting stuff. They were the team that put out four outfielders or whatever it was. Was it four outfielders against LeMahieu like two years no, ago? No, they, yeah, they did the, um, they did the extreme reverse shift. Oh, that's basically, what it was. Yeah, yeah. Basically, because DJ LeMahieu does not hit fly balls in the air, basically ever, or at least at that time. He, I, he doesn't hit him with his pull side. That's what I meant. Yeah. He doesn't hit him with his pull side. They basically had the right fielder on the right field line right. and no one in left field. Last night, uh, Arizona at the Mets, they did this twice. They did this in the fourth inning and they did this in the eighth inning. They had one of the weirder shifts I can ever think of. Um, they had their left fielder playing basically like right behind the shortstop in the third baseman. So they had their center fielder playing in left center and the right fielder playing in right center. They really only had two outfielders. The left fielder came and stood behind the shortstop in the third baseman. He was 180 feet from home plate. The average left fielder stands 297 feet uh, from home plate. They did it again in the eighth inning. Uh, sort of the same idea, except at that time when they did it, they moved guys around a little bit. So there was still uh, somebody standing over there, but it was actually the shortstop had moved. And then the left fielder was standing on the right side of second base it got very complicated. Um, it didn't actually work. He doubled the center field, right? He split, split them? He split the outfielders? Uh, yeah, he hit it to center, a little bit to right center. I'm not sure that a regular center fielder would have gotten there anyway because it was a pretty hard hit ball. Um, but still, you know, when you when you look at the numbers, I think I get it, right? So one thing you don't need data to know is that Wilson Ramos is incredibly slow, right? He's a mid-30s catcher, right? 23 feet per second, fourth percentile. He is like this sort of alignment screams to me like the Albert Pujols treatment, which we've seen teams do before put their shortstop like basically out there. Yeah, but that's what I mean. That's kind of what I was thinking. This is what it reminds me of. Except usually what they do is they put their shortstop there. Yeah. In this case, right. they're um, they're actually they have an extra fielder. Yeah, essentially. So basically, what they're gambling is that uh, if he hits the ball just over or just past the shortstop, that either it will be caught for and out. But if he happens to hit it over the left fielder's head. Uh, he's so slow and probably not aggressive that the center fielder, who was Marte, I believe, can get there and limit the damage. At worst, it's a double. Like There's no shot he's going to turn this into a triple or an inside-the-park home run. And the data supports that a little bit. First of all, Ramos hits a ton of ground balls. 62% ground ball rate. The major league average is 45%. So right away, you're not super worried about a fly ball because uh, he hasn't been hitting him in the air all that much. When he does put it on the ground... He is uh, to his pull side about 42% of the time. If you look at the heat map, there is a big, dark red spot right behind the shortstop third base hole, exactly where they position their fielder. When he does put it in the air, fly ball, line drive, or pop-up, it almost invariably goes to right or right center. It's not hard to see what they were thinking here, and I'm not sure if they're going to do it again because it, it didn't work. But I'm also not sure that like one or two times invalidates the premise. Like even when you have the shift, right, the regular infield shift, you could eat up five ground balls in a row into the shift. And then when the sixth one goes where the shortstop should have been, like how Daniel Palka got his hit, that's the one that people remember. And this is actually a case where I think, you know, this there, some of this might be trying to like, I mean, as you said, Ramos has been, you know, red hot at the plate where they might be trying to get in it. Like this is the kind yeah, of thing where it's like up. just trying to get in his head a little bit. Um and um, maybe it'll work. They're, they're playing a four-game series now. They've got three more games. Ramos will presumably play in at least two of them. So we'll, there'll be plenty of opportunity to uh, to see um, if they try this again. Do we know when Syndergaard's pitching next? 
We pitched on Sunday, so he's gonna he's gonna miss this. So I guess probably. Oh, fry, he's gonna miss a series. Fry, fry, I was fry, gonna fry. say, I know which game you won't be seeing this again. <laughs> <laughs> um, presumably, I guess Friday. James Paxton. Yes, James Paxton. I want to talk about James Paxton because a friend of mine, um, who is a Yankees fan, was asking me about him because he said, like, you know, it seems like a lot of the narrative about around Paxton has been like, you know, early in the year, maybe he was unlucky, and now he's, you know, maybe like the Babbitt is catching up to him, and he's like, is this something that Statcast could sort of uh, tell us about? And I was like. Yes, it can. Uh, wait, this is your reputation among your circle of friends now? <laughs> it's like, go, go to Myers and he'll dig into the numbers? Um, kind of. Oh, I mean, I think, cool. I think it's been that way for a while. Um, but I, I started digging into James Paxton's season, and I like, there's a lot of interesting kind of trends that, that have emerged um, uh, in his performances here. You know, as you know, last offseason, he was at the Yankees, kind of their big acquisition in a trade with the Mariners. He had a great year with the Mariners last year. Um, his first couple starts to begin the year, fine, whatever. And then late April, he had two just like dominant starts, back-to-back starts, 12 inning, twelve Ks in each, one walk in each, zero runs. And it was like, okay, this is the James Paxton the Yankees trade for. He's probably the race. May 3rd against the Twins, he leaves with left knee discomfort, goes on the IL. He misses almost a month. And then when he comes back, he basically, I wouldn't say stops throwing his curve, but really cuts down on his curve usage. Last year in sort of his breakout year, he was basically like, almost exclusively fastball curve with some cutters mixed in, like 65% fastballs, 25% curves. Um, And then in June, he was throwing his curve 13% of the time, July 13% of the time, and he was getting shelled, basically. In June, it's 715 ERA, July 568 ERA. Um, However, July is where we start to see maybe some of this, you know, sort of like disconnect between his – expected outcomes and his actual outcomes come into play. We see a 444 batting average on balls in play, which, you know, that's... Uh, that's high. <laughs> high, but a 289 expected weight on base, which is well above average. So I think in July, you start to see that maybe, hey, the old Paxton's coming back, and maybe the, the numbers you were seeing, the bad performances, were a bit of an illusion. And then, uh, interestingly enough, on July 26th, he have, has maybe his worst start of the year against Boston. Um, four innings pitched, seven runs, four home runs allowed, and he only threw his curveball 9% of the time. And then it seems like after that, he was like, screw it, I'm going back. Maybe the, maybe the knee was had been preventing him from throwing his curveball effectively. Maybe his landing was – there was something about it. I'm not exactly sure, but – he started throwing his curveball again, and curveball again, and lo and behold, since July 26th, he's now been throwing his curveball. Um, you know, essentially what he had been doing. You know, 25 percent of the time, his last two starts, he's been throwing 30 percent curves, only 10 percent cutters, and he's been one of the best pitchers in the league. His expect, expected weight on base since the 26th is right in line with um, you, Darvish, who we've talked about. Uh, recently on this podcast as being the mo- one of the most dominant pitchers in baseball in the second half, as well as Mike Ma- Mike Miner uh, and Steven Strasburg. Uh, that's a big deal because the Yankee rotation has been, I don't know, questionable. Like CeCe Sabathia has had this uh, knee problem for a while. J-Hap has been a lot better lately. J-Hap kind of was ineffective for most of the season. Last couple starts have been pretty good. And when you go into the postseason with them, there's not a clear number one. Like Luis Severino still hasn't made it back. Like he may or may not. You know, Tanaka has uh, had a lot of problems with his split-fingered fastball. So, like, James Paxton, I guess, is now their ace again, like, unless they use an opener, which I, I guess they that's, I think their, their postseason pitching setup is fascinating. Like, they've, like, I think right now the way Paxton's pitching, he's he's their game one guy. 
And then Severino, you know, even Boone, Aaron Boone said the other day that Severino has demonstrated enough to be an option was the quote. Um, they said they're going to try and get him up and have him, have him throw a couple 75-pitch outings um, in the majors to maybe, you know, he would never be a, 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 a uh, you know, five inning, five or six inning starter in the playoffs, but maybe be a, a three inning option. So an opener himself, well, perhaps. The Yankees have quietly used the opener a lot with Chad Green this year, and they yeah. are eleven and two yeah. when Chad Green is the opener. So what about Chad Green as an opener with Severino coming in after him? That seems unfair. <laughs> I mean, if Severino is healthy, yeah, it's, or it seems and, and, and Herman, like Domingo Herman's been pretty good, but he's probably not going to be like a starter in the postseason. No, it's they, they basically said they 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 want to make him a uh, reliever in the postseason. But then you could also say, hey, maybe Chad Green opens and Hap. Bringing the lefty is your bulk guy. So there's like a lot of moving pieces with with the Yankees, and you know they're they're clearly prepared. I think they're prepared to use the opener in the postseason, which is kind of wild because you think of the Yankees, obviously, you know, tradition, pinstripes, sure. all that. But um, if they use the opener in the postseason, it'll be interesting to see if it is unsuccessful. How you know the legendary New York tabloids react to that? Well, it's it's an interesting thought because if you remember last year, they were in the wild card game uh, against Oakland, and Oakland used the opener, right? Or bullpen game or however you want to phrase it and Liam Hendricks got lit up and so I, I've heard a bunch of people saying oh they, you know they can't they can't do it again they'll probably be in the wildcard game they can't do it again well they used their you know presumed ace last night Mike Fires, who got lit up by Houston the point is uh there's not one right way to do this and when I look at the Yankees um they have maybe the deepest best bullpen in baseball or at least one of them they don't really have any starters I trust a lot like as you said Paxton's been very good so fine they seem to be pretty well lined up to be the first team to go like I don't know 80 percent guys going five outs you know what I mean (laughs) and even Paxton you're not expecting him to go into the eighth inning I, I don't trust Tanaka more than like 15 outs or so, right? Like Sabathia, who knows? Hap, I don't trust him at all. You're going to have a bunch of guys like Green, like Severino, uh, Patances if he comes back, you know, go like, yeah, four or five outs. Like it's not going to be traditional baseball. A lot of people are going to hate it, but it's the most effective way, I think, for them to win because, you know, you'll have days off. You can get these guys rested. You have so many guys. I mean, you we haven't even talked about Chapman or Adovino or, or Tommy Canely, you know, like they have an endless amount of these guys. Zach Britton? Zach Britton, right. I forgot him. <laughs> and that's, I mean, the, the thing, the off days in the postseason, that they, that's what changes everything because basically almost every reliever is available in every game. You know, almost every reliever is available in games one and two, and then maybe in the the, the, the three, four, five in the, a row. Yeah, the, the, yeah, exactly. And so in the DS, you you have you basically never have three days in a row. So basically, every reliever is available every game unless they you know they throw forty pitches in an outing. And then in the LCS and World Series, it's three, four, five. Maybe you you can only do two of the three, but your best pitchers can basically pitch in every game. And the Yankees have a lot of really good relievers. It's kind of amazing how quickly that's changed, right? Like I remember. Uh, when Dave Cameron used to write at Fangraphs, I'm, I think the years would be like, let's say 12, 13, 14 or something like that. Every single year before the wildcard game, he would write basically the same exact piece, which is like, you guys should bullpen the wildcard game. And here's why. And nobody ever did, obviously. It was even in 2016 where Zach Britton never came into the wildcard game, which is insane to me. Uh, and now here we are talking about it like, oh, yeah, that's going to happen. Not even in the wildcard game, maybe for the entire playoffs from the Yankees. It's like expected practice at this point. Exactly. Because even Paxton, when he's at his best, you know, he's not, he, he usually runs up fairly high pitch counts. He's um, not efficient. So, like, sure. so your best case scenario is you're getting five dominant innings, maybe, maybe six. But this is not the Astros. This is not Verlander and Cole. This is not Scherzer. There's only like three or four pitchers 
who are going to be in the playoffs who I think have a chance at pitching into the eighth inning. I think I think people forget on both sides of the ball how much higher the skill level is. Nobody gets to face the Orioles in the postseason. <laughs> You're going through the Astros, like we just talked about, or the Twins who just set the all-time record for home runs. Like You shouldn't be expected to go eight innings against these teams. It's just not how things work. Um, a couple of National League Central teams who may or may not be in the postseason. I don't think I realized, and then I tweeted this in all of Cubs Twitter, uh, made sure to remind me that they knew about it. Chris Bryant has really not been very good for the last couple of weeks. Um, if you look at his season overall, 379 on base, 510 slugging, 26 home runs, pretty good. 131 weighted runs created plus, pretty good. Uh, especially since he wasn't that great last year, you know, with the shoulder injury. But if you break it down by half, in the first half, he was outstanding. He was probably in the MVP conversation in the first half, I would think. Uh, I guess, you know, Bellinger was destroying that, but he was really, really good. In he was performing half. as well on a rate basis as he did in 2016 yes. when he actually, when he did Those win the MVP. were the words I was trying to get to, but Bellinger was destroying everybody. Uh, in the first half, a 147 weighted runs created plus where 100 is league average. In the second half, 102. On the season, would you believe this? Chris Bryant has a 26th percentile hard hit rate. 75% of hitters in baseball are hitting the ball harder than he is. Now you wonder why. Uh, the answer seems to me pretty clear. He has a right knee issue. Uh, Jordan Bastian, our Cubs.com beat reporter, wrote about him yesterday, and he said, The right knee problem dates back to late June for Bryant, who first left a game with the issue on July 24th in San Francisco. Well, I dug around, and I couldn't really find anything more specific than late June. So I looked into the data, and I thought maybe we could see something a little uh, more closely. And, you know, maybe we found it. If you go to BaseballSavant.com, there are rolling charts that show you uh, any kind of metric you want over 50 batted balls, 100 batted balls, however you put it in. So I looked at his rolling hard hit rate over 50 batted balls. And if you look at it, there is a very, very clear decline. It is the side of a mountain that begins on or about June 23rd, which is cool because Jordan Bastian wrote that the right knee problem dates back to late June. So even if I don't know exactly what day, um, I don't think it's too much speculation to say that those two things line up. If you look at his numbers through June 22, a 378 expected weighted on base, which is very good, a 39% hard hit rate, and since a 306 expected weighted on base and a 26.9 hard hit rate, that's worse. Uh, he has sat out three of the last six games, and I guess now I am getting the speculation territory, but I'm going to do it anyway. Before July 20th, he made 29 starts in the outfield. He has not started a single game in the outfield since. Now, maybe that's because the Cubs have had infield injuries. I get it, but it also maybe seems like you don't want him running around in the outfield uh, with a sore right knee. The Cubs um, don't have Javi Baez right now because he fractured his thumb. They don't have Addison Russell because he's got a concussion. They don't have Chris Bryant. So Monday's infield was Anthony Rizzo, Ben Zobrist, Nico Horner making his major league debut. Who had a huge game in his who had debut. a huge game. Uh, and David Bodie at third base. Yes, Nico Horner had a huge game. He is, I believe, the first member of the 2018 draft class uh, to make it to the big leagues. He was drafted out of Stanford. And more importantly, does follow me on Twitter. So I'm <laughs> yes, already a Nico that, Horner fan. That's, that's more important. <laughs> the, yeah, the Cubs are just kind of, they've been like, you know, like wheezing their way to the finish line here. Yeah. Um, they've had a rough go against the Brewers the last couple of weekends, but they've, I think fortunately for them, we've gotten some. There's some some soft spots in their schedule from here on out. They got to dominate the Mariners for two games last week. They've now got four in San Diego. They've been a bad road team this year, but at least they're playing a San Diego team that's kind of just kind of hit the hit the cruise control button a little bit on just kind of playing out the playing out the string string a little bit. And they host the Pirates this weekend, host the Reds, which could be kind of interesting. Seven of the last ten. Wait for it. Then seven of the last ten, four against the Cardinals, 
three on the road against the Pirates, and then they close in St. Louis. They are currently four games behind the Cardinals. So uh, the way they're playing, I don't have a lot of optimism they'll catch them, but seven out of the last ten means a whole bunch of stuff can happen. Uh, I think more importantly, will they retain a wild card spot? They're right now two and a half games behind Washington for the first spot, two up on Milwaukee for the second spot. Um, we talked about Nicholas Castellanos last week. He's been crushing the ball. I think he had another home run uh, last night. He did. He's been absolutely unbelievable. Their infield is uh, sort of a mess, and they're starting pitching. Like, you know, John Lester has not been great. Kyle Hendricks was very good last night. Uh, Craig Kimbrell is out. He is out with a, an elbow injury. I believe he's expected back um, at some point soon. But, you know, he's been uh, hit or miss, I guess. Like, he's had good stretches, and he's also had some pretty bad games. As you said, I think wheezing to the finish line is probably a good way to put that. I mean, this this Chris Bryant thing is is a little scary. I mean, this is two years in a row now he's been seriously impacted by injury. And 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 Baez too, right? Like he's like out for the regular season. Yeah. It's kind of unclear if he's gonna be available. I mean, at this point he's their best player. Uh, yes, I would think so. Um and it's um there was an analogy that Will Leach made in a piece he wrote recently uh for MLB.com. He's actually uh, sort of gonna ex- expand on it for a, a full a full piece uh for tomorrow, uh Wednesday, that is, about kind of comparing this Cubs to another sh- legendary Chicago team, the eighty five Bears. Okay. And they kind of have this like a little bit of that feeling where the eighty five Bears were like seemed like a dynasty in the making. They were the most dominant team, they won a Super Bowl. And they just never really reached that anything close to that peak again. They, you know, they made the playoffs for a few more years, but it just was never the same. And you can kind of see it with this Cubs team in that you know they won in 2016, and then since then it's just like been they've made the playoffs, but it's been disappointing. Last year, losing the wild card game. This year, they look like they're going to go to the wild card game again if they survive. I'll also note, looking at the Brewers' schedule now, that the Brewers' schedule from here on out. Is really, really easy. easy. Yes, <laughs> They've got, they're currently playing the Marlins for four. Then they're at St. Louis, but then they host the Padres, host the host the Pirates, go to Cincinnati, and they finish in Colorado, which is weird. The Rockies aren't good, but always playing in Colorado. The Rockies have given up. I mean, <laughs> but the point is that like it's pretty well set up for the Brewers to catch them, and then if the Cubs don't make make the playoffs this year or go out in the wild card game, Joe Madden's contract is. No, you know it's famous. It's it's yep. it's through this year. There's been already been Chris Bryant trade rumors. Although right now you'd be trading low on Jed, Chris Bryant. Jed Hoyer would be running the Red Sox. <laughs> it's it's it could definitely it definitely feels like maybe I don't want to say the end of an era, but a big transition. Um, their pitching, their starting pitching is there's no way to put it is old. Yeah. Um. So it definitely feels like it could be a, a transition, a, a real transition period for um. For the Cubs, if we're if we're uh, talking about the '85 Bears as a, a team that won once and should have won more '86 Mets, right? Yeah, they're definitely. I feel like that would, that's a fun game. Is like thinking of those teams, like the one Braves team, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, speaking of the NL Central, the Cardinals' defense, depending on who you ask, the Cardinals' defense has gone from atrocious to excellent. Uh, last year, the Cardinals made the most errors in baseball, 133. This year. They have the fewest errors in baseball, 59. That is, you know, I don't care about errors, still admittedly kind of cool. Derek Gould at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch wrote a really interesting story about the Cardinals' uh, defensive improvement. He talked to a bunch of the coaches about how they've started to use the data and printing out the cards every day. It was really cool, and you should read it. Within there, he noted that no team in Major League history has ever gone from worst to first in errors in back-to-back seasons. That is kind of cool. Uh, the 1935 White Sox came the closest. They had the second fewest errors after leading the league the previous year. The Cardinals could also set a club record for fewest errors, besting the 2013 team's 75. Now, again, errors are an incredibly flawed defensive metric. However, 
this year's Cardinals defense is, in fact, very good. They are fourth in defensive runs saved. They are third in ultimate zone rating. They have added 20 points of value on batting average on balls in play. So they had a 308 expected BAPIP and a 288 actual plus 20 points, number one in baseball. That's very good. Um, part of it's Paul Goldschmidt. Part of it is that Paul DeYoung has turned out to be a much better shortstop than I think any of us predicted. And Craig Edwards at Fangraphs wrote about this this morning. And what he did was kind of cool. He looked into the StatCast data and he sliced and diced it by uh, expected batting average. So he looked at balls with a expected batting average between 100 and 400, 10% and 40% likely outs. They are number one in baseball on that. They have added 45 points of value. So if you do care about errors, they are no longer screwing up the easy ones, right? That's that's valuable. Make the plays you're supposed to play. Um, but actually, if you look at the tough plays, the 70% to 99%, they are minus 30 points of value. So they're, they're making the easy plays. They're not making the tough plays. There is certainly value in just not dropping the ball which i guess they did a lot of last year exactly and like you know on a on a micro like game to game level there is something extremely demoralizing about errors they just yeah. like giving away outs the problem i have with errors and i've always had with errors is that there are so many things that are actually errors that don't get scored errors right such as like losing a ball in the sun or just like totally misplaying a ball and not touching it you know it's so it's like I never know what to believe. There's such variance from like instance to instance to ballpark to ballpark. Well, it you, doesn't really you have to get there too. Like think about it this way. You cannot be so bad of a hitter that you can't strike out, right? But you can be so bad of a fielder that you can't get to a ball and get charged with an error. True, but the, I mean, and that's the sort of like the like one of my favorite uh, you know, Bill James passages, like the reason why errors are, are silly is because like to make one you have to do something right, which is get to the right, ball. Exactly. That said, the the difference is that like, you know, there are plays where it's demoralized. There is like a certain factor where if, you know, Byron Buxton's playing center field for me, he can get to a ball and drop it and get an error on it. Or someone else, they might not even touch it. So it's like, oh, it was a double anyway. Right. So like that's right. that's sort of like where where it, it gets uh it gets uh confusing. That said, the Cardinals were not nearly as bad as perception last year. Well, that's, that's, right. that's, that's the bottom line. That is the segue. It is not. It is not my intent to refute anyone who has said the Cardinals have improved. They have absolutely improved. Uh, but yes, they made the most errors in baseball last year, and that's bad. But I also don't think they were that bad last year. Uh, by defensive runs saved, they were ninth. By UZR, they were tenth. They added, uh, as I said, they added twenty points of value on batting average and balls in play this year, which is the best last year. They added ten points of value which was 14th, so like slightly above average. They weren't a great defense last year, um, but they were not, you know, the worst in baseball. I vaguely remember like pitching you something on this in like January when I was like, oh God, it's January. What are we going to write about? And then for never, whatever reason, uh, we never did. Maybe it's because I took time off for the baby. Now I wish I had done that, you know? Um, but <laughs> Sorry, I wanted, kid. <laughs> I wanted to know why. And so I, I dug into this. Maybe the infield is better. No, let me take that back. The infield is definitely better. And the outfielding catchers may be a little bit worse. Um, the infield is different, right? They obviously now have Paul Goldschmidt, who is considered a very good first baseman. And DeYoung has really uh, improved, no doubt about that. I don't think Colton Wong has gotten better or worse. He's still a pretty good second baseman. Uh, if I if I just look at points of value added on ground balls, which is a pretty safe way to look at infielders, last year they had an expected batting average against of 243. Actually, both years, 243. And last year, their actual was 239. So they added plus four points ninth in baseball this year their actual is 213 they've added 30 points number one in baseball right there more ground balls turning in outs great hooray however different story in the outfield last year they had nine outs above average eighth best in baseball this year negative five 
23rd in baseball. The outfield, I think, has gotten worse. There are pretty clear reasons for that. Number one, a lot less Harrison Bader this year because he stopped being able to hit. And a lot more think, Jose Martinez this year who cannot field. And if I recall correctly, in 2018, like on a rate basis, Harrison Bader was the best Field by outs above average. Yes. So he has played about 150 or so fewer innings this year. Jose Martinez, who we love, but who absolutely cannot field the ball, has played about 220 more innings this year. Uh, and more Dexter Fowler, who is, you know, not not a strong outfielder. We'll call him a slightly below average outfielder. So I don't think it's controversial to say the outfield's gotten worse. Um, I thought catcher was a little bit interesting, too. If you just look at framing runs, last year they were 17th in baseball at minus 1.2 runs. This year they are 28th in baseball at minus 11.8 runs. Um, it's mostly about the backups. Yadi Molina has stayed stable. Last year, Carson Kelly and uh, and Pena were minus one. This year, Matt Wieters and Andrew Knizer are minus eight. So I will say the Cardinals defense... Uh, it has improved overall, but I do not think it was the worst last year, nor do I think it's actually the best this year. Errors, I guess, are directionally accurate in this case. Um, well said. Um, that's our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Thanks for listening. 